I love, I love to teach about the relational side of life. I like to, to bring faith and life together. It's what is really my heartbeat so that you can live lives, we can live lives of integrity, we can figure things out when there are difficulties, we can figure things out. When we have to have difficult conversations, we can figure things out. We can do life together to the honor and glory of Jesus Christ. And so bringing faith and life together, I hope that someday somebody might say he tried his best. He tried his best to bring faith and life together which is why I was kind of disappointed the other day that uh, I, got, I got national recognition. It was out on the radio that I was famous for something that I really never set out to be famous for. Take a listen. Well, by now, I'm sure you're sick of hearing about National Meatball Day. I mean, this is the kind of stuff that disc jockeys on the radio, we just love to talk about it. One of the fun things of looking up these national designated days, because some of them are so silly. Anyway, this is National Meatball Day, and I will let you know that if you want an opinion on a meatball, the minister at Spring Branch Community Church, where we attend, Michael Simone, he is the local authority on meatballs. I'm telling you, he can smell a meatball a mile away. So if you're going to try a new recipe, give Michael a call. He'll run right over. Gene Loving on WGH, we continue to play the greatest music ever recorded. Here's another one on Famous 1310. Well, I think I'm going out of my head. Yes, I think I'm going out of my head. So because it was National Meatball Day, I was nationally recognized, well, at least locally recognized, but, but I, I didn't set out for that. I didn't set out for that. I just want to teach about faith and life coming together and how that can help you live in relationships of integrity, of biblical integrity, grounded upon biblical principles. So this is what, this is what I know about relationships as we begin this Rethink How You Live series. I believe you can have better relationships. I really do believe that. I believe you have, we all have blind spots in our relationships. There's stuff that we just don't see and we keep repeating those things over and over again. And, and we need somebody to, to be with us in life to help us see those things about ourselves that we don't see. The Bible says faithful are the wounds of a friend. If somebody tells you something about yourself, it might be that God is saying it's time to make a change. I believe relationships that are stuck can get unstuck if you're willing to put in the effort. And there's kind of a flip side to that. I believe there are some relationships that are never going to work. And that wasn't a choice you made, but it's a choice you must accept at times in your life. And those are, those are hard times, but that's part of reality too. I believe you need to learn more about how you sometimes set yourself up for difficulties in relationships with friends and family, a lot of repetitive things going on and, and, and people get sideways with each other, but you're repeating a pattern and you need to figure out how you set yourself up. I believe you are responsible, we all are responsible for our own relational maturity. Relational maturity is up to us. We have to decide we want to grow. We have to decide we want to get better and we want to be everything that God wants us to be. 
And then finally, and the biggest one of all, I believe you need God in all of your relationships. I believe your relationship with God must be the preeminent relationship of your life. The preeminent relationship of your life. There are lots of lessons in life, lots of relational lessons. I'd like to talk to you today about the life is not an accident lesson. Genesis chapter 32. Jacob also went on his way and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, and this is an exclamation, this is the camp of God. This is the camp of God. God's camping right here. I'm camping here. And, and I have my family here and God's camping right here with me. So he named that place Mahanaim. Jacob sent messengers ahead of him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He instructed them, this is what you are to say to my Lord Esau. Your servant Jacob says, and you can see how there's relational stuff going on here. I have been staying with Laban and have remained there till now. I have cattle and donkeys, sheep and goats, male and female servants. Now I am sending this message to my Lord that I may find favor in your eyes. I've done very, very well. Things have gone really great for me. And, and I hope that, that things can go great with us. When the messengers returned to Jacob, they said, we went to your brother Esau and now he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. When's the last time you needed 400 of your closest friends and relatives to, to go visit somebody. So he's a little worried now. Jacob's a little worried. In great fear and distress, Jacob divided the people who were with him into two groups. Can you imagine him saying, okay, count off by, by twos. One, two, one, two. One's over here, two's over here, just like we did in grade school. And the flocks and herds and camels as well. He thought if Esau comes and attacks one group, the group that is left, may escape. Well, these people are getting beat up. Everybody else, run. Then Jacob prayed, O God of my father Abraham, God of my father Isaac, Lord, the preeminent relationship. Lord, you who said to me, go back to your country and your relatives, and I will make you prosper. I am unworthy of all the kindness and faithfulness you have shown your servant. I had only my staff when I crossed this Jordan, but now I have become two camps. Save me, Save me, I pray, from the hand of my brother Esau, for I am afraid. So you have fear, distress. You just can feel the anxiety in this whole situation, the relational anxiety, for I'm afraid he will come and attack me and also the mothers with their children. But you have said, I will surely make you prosper and will make your descendants like the sand of the sea, which cannot be counted. He spent the night there, and from what he had with him, he selected a gift for his brother Esau, 200 female goats and 20 male goats, 200 ewes and 20 rams, 30 female camels with their young, 40 cows and 10 bulls and 20 female donkeys and 10 male donkeys and a Wendy's and a McDonald's and a Burger King. He just was like putting it all out there. He put them in the care of his servants, each herd by itself. And so, I should have said Chick-fil-A. Chick-fil-A uh, herd by itself and said to his servants, go ahead of me and keep some space between the herds, he instructed the one in the lead, when my brother Esau meets you and asks, who do you belong to and where are you going and who owns all these animals in front of you? Then you are to say, they belong to your servant Jacob. They are a gift 
sent to my Lord Esau. It's a gift to you. And he is coming behind us. He's right here. He's coming up soon. He also instructed the second and the third and all the others who followed the herds. You are to say the same thing to Esau when you meet him. And be sure to say, your servant Jacob is coming behind us. For he thought, I will pacify him with these gifts I am sending on ahead. Later when I see him, perhaps he will receive me. Any of you ever try to pacify somebody with a gift? This is, this is something that goes back to ancient times. So Jacob's gifts went on ahead of him, but he himself spent the night in the camp. That night, Jacob got up and took his two wives, his two maidservants, and his 11 sons and crossed the ford of the Jabbok. After he had sent them across the stream, he sent over all his positions. So now he has nothing. He's sent his gifts on ahead. He's hoping for the best. Sent his family so they would be safe. And he's, he's alone. He's alone and it's quiet in the dead of the night. So Jacob was left alone. And a man wrestled with him till daybreak. When the man saw that he could not overpower him, he touched the socket of Jacob's hip so that his hip was wrenched as he wrestled with the man. Then the man said, let me go for it is daybreak. daybreak. But Jacob replied, I will not let you go unless you bless me. The man asked him, what is your name? Jacob, he answered. Then the man said, your name will no longer be Jacob, but Israel, because you have struggled with God and with men and have overcome. It was God who was wrestling with Jacob. Jacob said, please tell me your name. But he replied, why do you ask my name? Then he blessed him there. So Jacob called the place Peniel saying, it is because I saw God face to face and yet my life was spared. And then it's almost like this, this Hollywood movie ending if you can get this picture in your mind. The sun rose above him as he passed Peniel and he was limping because of his hip. Life is not an accident. It's a series of things that God is doing in our lives for his purposes that have an intentional destination in mind, an eternal destination in mind. But at some point, you have to face life alone. Notice in verse 23 of this chapter in Genesis, he not only sent his family away, but all of his possessions. He was there with himself. That was all he had. And this is what we don't get told a lot. But it's true. You have to spend some time alone with God if you're going to understand what God is doing in your life. And there's an interesting word in the first couple of verses of this chapter in Genesis. Jacob also went on his way, and the angels of God met him. When Jacob saw them, he said, this is the camp of God. So he named that place Mahanaim. And Mahanaim in Hebrew means two camps. He named the place two camps. Why? Because God was camping there with him. And he knew that God was, was intimately involved with his life. He, when he talked about God, you could hear the intimacy that he was expecting, that he understood was a part of every single moment of his life. Mahanaim, two camps. And even when it seems like we're alone, God is always in that moment. And in this moment with Jacob, God is going to wrestle with him and something very, very significant is going to happen in his life. Imagine, imagine a wrestling match going on all night long 
and then the sun begins to come up. And, and I, I, have to, I have to believe that, that during the wrestling, that there were some, some questions or some talking or some discussion about life and faith and the future and what God was doing. When you're alone with God, I imagine there are some important questions to answer. First question that I'd like to offer you today is, what have I put in you? What have I put in you? This is the question of your giftedness. Whenever I do baby dedications, I always quote Proverbs 22, 6. I did a baby dedication yesterday for a lovely family and a little baby girl named Charlotte. And, and when I get to this Proverbs 22, 6, train up a child in the way they should go. And when they are old, they will not depart from it. Whether it's a, a boy or a little girl, they will not depart from it. I always point out to the family that in Hebrew, there's a picture here. And the picture is that God has already put a way. The word bent is in the verse. That there's a, a bent to this child's life. And God has put this way, this, this direction in the child's life. And you can't see it. You just see a baby. But there's a direction in the child's life. Maybe the child is going to be an artist. Maybe the child is going to be a scientist. Maybe the child is going to write great books. Maybe the child is going to be a great leader and lead something that we haven't even begun to think about yet. But there's something in the child that's there. And all you can do as parents, all you can do as family members and friends is to help God unwrap the gift that's in the child. What have I put in you you were once that child. God put something in you. The unfolding of that gift is a big part of your life. This is the question of your giftedness. He played for Notre Dame. Played on that famous gridiron there in South Bend, Indiana. And he was on a national championship football team in 1966. He was then drafted by the Pittsburgh Steelers in 1968, but he only did that first year. He didn't play much, and he was sent to Vietnam to be there for a couple of years. Rocky Blyer was in Vietnam, and he got shot in the hip one day and stepped on a, a landmine, and his foot got blown up. He was rushed to a hospital in Da Nang, later to a hospital in Tokyo, where he had surgery after surgery to try to repair his, his foot, and they said, we're so sorry. You are never going to, to play professional football again. But Rocky was determined. He knew that God had put something in his life to get done. He knew that, that he really wanted to get back and play football for the Steelers. And so he got this postcard while he was in Tokyo from Art Rooney, owner of the Pittsburgh Steelers, and said, we want you to come back. We want you to come back and be with us. So he got back to Pittsburgh and he was allowed to try out for the team and it was, a, it was a huge struggle, it was a huge struggle. But he finally made the team and he played with the likes of Terry Bradshaw and Franco Harris. He played in a number of Super Bowls, winning four Super Bowl rings during his time with the Steelers, which lasted from 1971 to 1980. Four Super Bowl rings. And I got to meet Rocky Blyer about 10 years ago. And, and he inspired me so much listening to his story that after he was done, I, I said, I'm just going to walk up straight up to him and maybe I'll get to meet him. Maybe I won't, but I'm just going to go for it. So I went up and I got right up to him. I shook his hand and, uh, and I told him, you inspired me 
tonight. And this is what he said to me. You know, I just heard something recently, and I was going to use it tonight, but I didn't. But let me tell it to you, because he knew at that point that I was a pastor. And he said this, it's a sin to be good when God made you to be great. It's a sin to be good when God made you to be great. The story of his life revolves around his recovery, revolves around the intense effort that he made. Nobody worked harder than he worked because he knew his giftedness. He knew what it was and he knew that God had put something special in him. And he continued to ask himself a question during his recovery. And that question can drive your life today to a new place to understanding what God's put in you. The question was, what if? What if? What if I don't work as hard as I can? What if I don't seize the opportunity to go back and play professional football? What if I give up? And the question of of what if drove his life for the rest of his life. Indeed, it drives his, his life today. When you're alone and you're quiet and you try to wrestle with God, God's gonna say to you, what have I put in you? This is the question of your giftedness and you must know your giftedness and deliver out of your giftedness what God needs for his kingdom, for his purposes, for ministry and mission. What have I put in you? Second question is, what have I put in your life? Are you willing to give up everything you are and everything I have given you just because I ask you to? This is the question of your resources, your relationships, the sum total of all your relationships, the sum total of everything that comes within your employment, your job, all the responsibilities you have, all the the opportunities that you have to give yourself to work. And that work produces assets and all the assets that God blesses you with. What have I put in your life? Are you willing to give up everything you are and everything I've given you just because I ask you to? I was reading this book the other day. This is the first book from the new teaching pastor at Willow Creek Community Church, Steve Carter. And it's a good little book. Uh, And I read a lot of books. And the whole book is worth what's in one chapter. It's a chapter that's about stages of discipleship. Let me tell you what Steve Carter says. He says there's three stages of discipleship. The first stage is the simple stage of discipleship. This is where you consider life with Jesus as a beautiful idea. Jesus said some amazing things that that challenged my my thinking and and I feel sort of called to something bigger. And and Jesus uh, just, I know that, that his finished work on the cross is what allows me the opportunity to have eternal life as I believe in him, as I, as I put my entire life upon him. Uh, you know, Jesus has just been somebody that I, I've emulated. I want to do the things that he does and say the things that he says. But it kind of, it stops as an idea. It stops as an idea. It stops and kind of flatlines because you have to go through a struggle if you're ever going to truly be his disciple. And talks about that through and through the New Testament. And the struggle, the second stage of discipleship, it's what Steve Carter calls a title fight of the will. It's like 
your faith is going to be tested. God's going to find out what really is, is that you are made of. You're going, to, you're going to ask questions. You're going to be driven to your knees. It's going to be hurt. There's going to be hurt. There's going to be brokenness. And God says, without this, I don't know if you really want to come on this journey with me. Without this, I cannot do what I need to see done in your life. This is the whole maturity thing that has to happen. And so it starts out as a beautiful idea. Suddenly it's a struggle. It's a heartache. It's a heartbreak. It's a pounding of your life. And you see the Apostle Paul in the expanse of his life going through all those difficult, difficult things. Yet he never gives up what he was called to do because there's a third stage of discipleship. And that's the stage called sacred. The sacred stage of discipleship. Your faith has been tested and proved authentic. It's real. It's a real faith. And you, you live at a deeper level of faith than you ever did before. Carter puts it this way. Why are you here? If you hesitate to answer that question, it might be a clue as to where God is inviting you to grow. Perhaps you're living in the simple stage. You believe in Jesus, but just want to have a nice, easy, low-key life, never risking your comfort to face the pain of rejection or disappointment. The problem is, if you stay there, you'll never really get to answer the question of why you're here, because it's only in the struggle that you catch a glimpse of why you're here. And without an understanding of why you're here, you can't get to that sacred place of authentic life with God. What have I, what have I put in you? What have I put in your life? Are you willing to give up everything you are and everything I've given you just because I ask you to? It's living the Romans 8, 28 life in real time every single day. For all things work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. Never says everything is good, but it says God will take even what you think wasn't good at all and he will make something amazing out of it because you love him, because you want a life that walks in sacred time. There's another question. Are you willing to live life's unfairness for my glory? Are you willing to live life's unfairness for my glory? This is the question of spiritual vision. This is, this is when you think you deserve this and you don't even get close. And all this happens over here that you never expected that just falls apart. And, and God says, does it look unfair to you? Do you think it looked unfair to Job? Does it look unfair to you? This is the question of spiritual vision. In 1999, he was the New Jersey State Player of the Year. Now, I grew up in New Jersey. I grew up in Bergen County, the most densely populated county in the most densely populated state in the United States. There are lots of people there. And he was the number one basketball player in the whole state in 1999. He went to Duke University. In 2002, he won a national championship with Duke. Uh, he was, his, his jersey was retired at Duke. He was so great. And then he was the second overall pick in the NBA draft by the Bulls. The only reason he was the second is because the Houston Rockets had the first pick and they picked Yao Ming, uh, a gentleman who's about nine feet tall. They thought that could really help them win. 
so he's the second overall pick for the Bulls, and he is just, he's destined to fill the sneakers of a guy you may have heard of, Michael Jordan. And so he's living the dream. He signs a contract for four and a half million dollars right out of college. This is living the dream. But it's in his contract that he will never ride a motorcycle because it would be too dangerous to, to do that and to have some kind of an accident. But he's headstrong and he doesn't like people telling him what to do. And he's got a lot of money and he's been the, the player of the century and everybody has all these great expectations and you're filling Michael Jordan's shoes. And so one day he gets mad, he gets angry after he's having a conversation with his agent and he goes outside and his agent tries to stop him and he can't stop him, he gets on a motorcycle and he starts going 60, 70, 80 miles an hour and he wrecks against a light pole. And his life is changed forever and it's pretty much over. His career is over. Kiss four and a half million dollars in the future, goodbye. He writes this in his book, Life is Not an Accident. Many people make bad decisions in life and walk away unscathed. Some of us aren't as fortunate, forced to pay the price for a life-altering mistake. To this day, I am judged regularly for an accident that happened a lifetime ago. But I know that I have a choice every day to either feel sorry for myself and continue to let the accident define me or to forgive myself and appreciate the second chance I have been given. I choose the latter. You see, Jay Williams became a Christian. He became a follower of Jesus Christ. He started to see beyond the simple and he was already in the struggle moving toward the sacred. I understand, he said, that it's an important part of my story, but it's a turning point, not an ending. I won't let it be my whole story. There are no accidents in this life. So where are you right now? What kind of story has been written so far. Do you know that whatever story it is, it can be a turning point. There are no accidents in this life. See, what you see is where you're going, but you're not there yet. You need something to get you there. And that's what God wants to give you. And so we go back, right back to Jacob and to Genesis. Out of these questions and your answers to God, God will give you his gift, a limp. Your limp will forever be a reminder of God and you wrestling, God and you moving toward the sacred. The rest of your life is the story of what comes out of the limp. Life is not an accident. It is what God is doing as you write the story of your life with his pen. He's writing your story on your heart with all his grace and all his love by giving you a limp, by giving you a limp that reminds you every single day of what you're not and what he can be. Maybe it's time to rethink how you live. As is often the case in a relationship moment, God sends me a letter this is a letter that came a while back. But as I read it, it really spoke 
to my heart about what we're talking about today. Dear Michael, my best friends are limpers. Gimpy people are my pride and joy. I know you grow tired and weary of clumping along, Michael, but it's necessary because I want you to know me well. This limp I bestow upon men and women is one of the hardest parts of our relationship. Not many people expect it. The jolt of it sends some people reeling away from me, shouting about my unfairness and insensitivities. But they're always wrong. Your limp is your blessing. Few achieve much without it. It is the limp that forces you to understand the complexities of relationships. It implores you to answer the real questions of why you were born and what you should do. The limp gives texture and color to your days. It offers you insight into others who limp and who may have, had, who may have something to teach you about the story being written on your heart by my hand. Your limp is not an accident, nor is your life. What you do next is called the turning point. It's the limpers who maintain the greatest dignity, the limpers who maintain, who build the strongest communities, the limpers who lead the best, the limpers who love the best. Gimpy people make my heart race, for it is with them that I remind the world of the true meaning of grace. If following my son is just to keep you keeping yourself happy and avoiding the wrestling match, You've missed sacred by a hundred miles. True cries of worship must rise from sweaty hearts. And so I go on through the centuries, giving out new names like courageous, humble, broken, and servant to my limping crew. The best thing you can do is to be on my team of faller downers. It's a good team to be on. Every sunrise illuminates a ragtag bunch dragging themselves onto a field called faith. Gimpy, people play better than you would think. Stay gimpy, wrestling with you, God. It's a long time ago, a man spent a night wrestling with God and walked away with the gift of a limp and it changed everything. Your limp will change everything if you let it be a turning point. Rethink how you live. Dear Heavenly Father, we hear this story of a nighttime wrestling match. We ponder the questions and we, we hope for the sacred. Father, guide us in, in the details of each and every day. Guide us in the details of all the relationships of our lives to Find you in all the relationships of our lives, to search for your love and your grace in every relationship, to find the places that can be turning points. Father, guide us by your holy hands today and always. We love you. You are the most important relationship of all. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.